We are going to go back and read some of the verses that Hunter read earlier, so you will need your Bible open or on, however you prefer to use it. This morning is a continuation of last week. Last week we started the story of Jesus interacting with this woman, this Samaritan woman at a well outside of a village. And uh, we left off last week with Jesus saying something to this woman that he said to very few people openly. The woman ends by saying, I know that the Messiah is coming. And John translates that word for us. He says, that's the one who's called the Christ. And then Jesus looks at this woman, John 4, 26, and he says, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Jesus didn't say this to many people. People had lots of different ideas in their head about who the Messiah would be, about what he would do. And typically when people ask Jesus directly about this, he just sort of dodged. But this woman brings it up and Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah. The disciples come back, and it's not exactly clear, but they come back on the tail end of the conversation between Jesus and the woman. And when they come back and they they catch the end of this this discussion, they're shocked to find Jesus, a Jewish male, talking with this Samaritan woman. In the first century, many Jewish rabbis discouraged men from speaking to women in public. And I just want to explain to you John 4, 27, that says they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Many Jewish rabbis would suggest in Jesus' day, men should not talk to women in public in any sort of formal, open setting. And I want you to understand, this was more, this idea floating around, it was more than what you may have heard of lately as the Mike Pence rule. You heard of the Mike Pence rule, vice president kind of got, I don't know, he got in trouble, but he sort of got made fun of. Because he said, I have a policy that I'm not going to spend time with a woman alone who is not my wife. If it's not my wife, then I'm going to have somebody else in the room. And people sort of laughed at him and said, oh, that's silly, that's ridiculous. They said all sorts of different things about it. As you look at the news every day, it kind of looks smart after some of the things that have happened. But the Mike Pence rule. Originally, the Mike Pence rule was the Billy Graham rule. You may or may not know that. But in 1948, these four guys were just, they were younger than that. That was not 1948. But 1948, these four guys were getting together, and they were starting this ministry. And they came up with something that, in hindsight, they didn't call it this at the time. They just agreed on it. But in hindsight, people call it the Modesto Manifesto. They were in Modesto, California, and they put their heads together, and they said, look, if we're going to go into ministry together, here's four things that we're going to commit to. Number one, we're not going to exaggerate our numbers. We're not going to be like these evangelists who go around and they say, you know, we had 50,000 people in the arena when everyone knows there was 5,000. We're not going to exaggerate. We're going to be as honest as we can about reporting our numbers. Secondly, they said we want to stay connected with local churches. We don't want to just run something that does an end run around the church, but as much as we can, you can say they did a good job of this or a bad job, but part of their agreement was we want to try to stay connected with local churches. Number three, it was very common in 1948 for evangelists to live off of love offerings that were sometimes extremely large. And if you lived off those love offerings, there was a temptation built in to really sort of manipulate people to give more to the love offering, so you ended up with more. 
And these guys agreed, we're not going to take love offerings for pay. We're going to live off modest salaries. We're going to set the salary. That's what we get. Anything on top of that, we're not going to financially profit from. And then the fourth thing they agreed on, the last piece of the Modesto Manifesto, Billy Graham and his buddies, they said, we are not going to put ourselves in compromising situations with women who are not our wives. We're going to be very careful about that. There have been a lot of evangelists, and there have been a lot of evangelists since who have gotten in trouble with women, and they said, as, as much as we can, we want to make wise decisions about the situations we put ourselves into. And they came together, and they made this agreement. And so people look back on it, and especially the last piece, sometimes it's called the Billy Graham rule, sometimes it's called the Mike Pence rule, What I want you to understand is what these Jewish rabbis in the first century were talking about was way beyond the Billy Graham rule or the Mike Pence rule. I'll give you an example of what one Jewish rabbi in the first century said. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself, neglects the study of the law, and at last will inherit Gehenna, translation hell. Like That's pretty serious. That's the preacher, the teacher standing up and saying, fellas, If you talk too much with, can you imagine someone saying this today seriously, womankind, you're not going to have enough time to study the Bible and you're probably going to end up in hell. They said all sorts of inflammatory, crazy things. Jesus didn't really play by their rules. The Gospels tell us that Jesus actually invited women to travel around with his disciples. He had women who were part of his sort of inner circle. No women were were called to serve as apostles, but they were part of his group. And I'm not suggesting to you that the disciples agreed with that statement that I just put on the screen. I'm not suggesting to you that Peter and James and John and the rest of them came back and saw Jesus talking with this woman and thought, Oh, Jesus. Oh, no. You don't have enough time to study the word now and you're probably going to go to hell. That's not what they were thinking. But that's the sort of stuff that was in the air. And when they come back and they find Jesus alone, a Jewish male, talking with this Samaritan woman, they're shocked. That was just something that wasn't done. Men didn't really speak to women in public, even if they were their wives. And Jewish men certainly didn't speak with Samaritan women, and they come back and they find Jesus sort of breaking these societal norms, and they're shocked. Not only are they shocked, they're confused. And part of the confusion stems from the fact that just like Nicodemus and just like the Samaritan woman, the disciples interpret Jesus literally when he starts to talk about food. And this is like a running joke. If you have eyes to see it, John is telling you just kind of how dumb all of us are when it comes to dealing with Jesus. Nicodemus shows up, and he has this conversation, and Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he says, what? Like, go back in the womb? Huh? What? And he doesn't get it. And then the Samaritan woman starts talking to Jesus, and Jesus says, look, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water, and I would give you living water. And she looks around and says, you don't even have a bucket. Where are you going to get water from? I don't, she doesn't understand. Both of them taking Jesus literally. Now the disciples come back, and Jesus is talking with the woman, and John says they don't ask him what's going on. Like, it's really awkward for them. But they've just been into town to get food, and they look at Jesus, and Jesus starts to say, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, who brought him lunch? That's that was what we were doing. Why, where did he get the food? Did he have a stash? Did the woman? They don't know what's going on. Everyone's trying to take Jesus literally. 
it's almost as if no one has ears to hear what Jesus is really saying. And so there's shock and there's confusion. And John describes an ironic scene in which the Samaritan woman, leaving back to town, appears to know more about Jesus than his own disciples. And I just want you to understand, John, who wrote this gospel, is one of the disciples. He would not have any big interest in making himself look dumber, excuse me if I can just use that word, dumber than a Samaritan woman. But that's exactly what he does. He, he's in effect saying, look, we come back from town with the food. We don't know what's, why is he talking to this woman? He's talking about food. What, where did the food come from? We don't understand what's happening. All the while, this Samaritan woman is going back knowing that Jesus is the Christ. And when you read that, it's supposed to be a little bit funny. Like Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and Jesus' best friends, the disciples, appear to have less understanding about who he is than this immoral Samaritan woman. And all of it, as she goes back to town and the people come back out to Jesus, all of it leads to the big idea. It's a very beautiful thought. Here it is. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's what they say when they come back. We're going to work our way all the way to verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We're going to jump in and fill in the blanks here, but I just want to give you a few disclaimers about this title, the Savior of the world. What did these people mean? What does John mean when he tells us that Jesus is the Savior of the world? One thing he does not mean, the Samaritans or John who's telling us this story, is that Jesus will end up saving every single person. When we say Jesus is the Savior of the world, it only shows up in this gospel and later in the book of 1 John. It doesn't mean that every single person is going to be saved in the end. This is not a, a biblical proof text for what uh, philosophers and theologians would call universalism. The idea that everyone, it, salvation is going to be universal. Everyone is going to end up in heaven someday. There's people who believe that. Every person, simply by virtue of the fact that you lived and then you died, then the next step is you go to heaven. Universalism. That's not what John is suggesting. This isn't even inclusivism. Inclusivism would be the idea that as long as you're sincere in your religion, whatever your religion may be, in the end, if you're sincere, you're going to be saved. Jesus is going to take you to heaven. You may or may not know about Jesus in this life, but if you're a sincere, religious, moral, upstanding person, then in the end, you get like a pleasant surprise. Good news. Your religion was false, but Jesus saved you anyways. That's not what we're talking about. When we read this title, Jesus is the Savior of the world, it's not saying to us, Jesus will save all people without exception, as, as in every single person. It's saying to us, Jesus is the Savior of all people without distinction. He's talking with a, a group of Samaritans. And the idea is very plain. Jesus is the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of the Samaritans. He's the Savior of the Gentiles. He's the Savior of the Mexicans. He's the Savior of the Americans. He's the Savior of the Norwegians. He's the Savior of the Chinese. Every group of people on the planet, this is the guy. You want a means of salvation? This is him. 
He is the Savior for the entire world, all people without distinction. Now, we hear this title, Savior of the World. We initially think about Jesus. You know that the first people who read this gospel, when they heard that title, Jesus is the Savior of the World, their first thought wouldn't have been towards Jesus. Their first thought would have probably been to the Greek and Roman pantheons, gods and goddesses, many of whom, just Google it and look it up, many of whom called themselves literally the Savior of the world. It was a common title for this deity or that deity. And it became so common in the the Greek and the Roman pantheons, eventually the Roman emperors decided they would jump in on it. And the Roman emperors loved titles. Like emperor was good enough for a little while, but then you had to keep adding titles. And one of the titles that many of the emperors added is, I am the savior of the world. For example, Augustus, Tiberius, Nero, Vespasian, Titus, all of these emperors called themselves the savior of the world. And John just sort of drops this title in. It's on the lips of the Samaritans. He just drops it into the story, and what he's saying is this. All those other gods and goddesses that people worship, they're not the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He will save all people without distinction. There's no other Savior to be found in the whole world but this one. And all those politicians and emperors and and people in power and authority, they are not your Savior. They cannot save you. Jesus alone can save you. We read Jesus is the Savior of the world, and we just sort of say, duh, of course. But when they talked about Jesus being the Savior of the world, at the same time that they made that profession, they were also saying, Zeus is not the Savior of the world, and Caesar is not the Savior of the world. Jesus alone, no other God, no other earthly leader, only Jesus is the Savior. And in this story, we read all this interaction about Jesus and the woman and the people from this village. John is filling in the details with what does it actually mean that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so our question is, what does John want us to know about the Christ, the Messiah? What does John want us to know about Jesus as the Savior? Just a couple of simple thoughts. Number one, Jesus had a mission. As the Savior of the world, Jesus had a mission. And I want you to look in the text at John chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. He said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. So the disciples said to other, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, underline that word in your Bible, it may not say accomplish, it might say finish, but underline that word, to accomplish or to finish his work. I'm reading out of the ESV. They, they translate that word accomplish. If you have a, a Holman Bible or an NIV or an NLT or you like the King James, all of those translations go with the word finish. And I think finish is the better translation in this instance. What Jesus says is, I have food that you don't know about. And my food, the thing that drives me, the thing that sustains me, the thing that really gets to the core of who I am is to finish the Father's 
work. And I just want you to understand that for the disciples to hear Jesus say this would have set off alarm bells. Okay? Just assuming most of these disciples grew up in a Jewish synagogue, they went to little Jewish synagogue Sunday school class, whatever they called it. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They would have heard the story of Genesis 1 where God creates the heavens and the earth. And what happens on the last day in Genesis 1? The seventh day, God rests. It's not because he was tired. It's because he was finished. And they would have had it drummed into their head from a a very young age. The father has finished his work. He is now resting. He worked for six days. He finished it all. And he was done. And now he's resting. And then Jesus pipes up. And I just, it would have sent like alarm signals, lights flashing. Just wouldn't have sounded right. Jesus says, the father has work and I'm working and I'm here to finish his work. And you know and I know he's not talking about creation. He's not saying I'm here to make something new. He's talking about redemption. The father created, and when he was done, he rested. But then everything went haywire. And my mission is not creation now. It was that previously. My mission now is salvation. My mission now is redemption. And I have come to finish that work. Did you know if you fast forward in the Gospel of John, you end up in John 19.30. We're going to be there months into the future. But look what this verse says. Jesus is on the cross. When he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. The exact same word you find in John 4. Same Greek root. It's accomplished. It's finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What is involved in this mission of Jesus? Let me just throw it out to you. His mission required obedience. His mission required sacrifice. And the mission had to be finished. That's his mission. I've come to obey. I've come to die. And I have come to finish this thing. I'm not going to leave any loose ends not tidied up. Right? This is just gospel 101. Basic gospel truths. Jesus came to obey, he came to die, and he came to finish this mission. You and I are sinners. The Bible is clear about that. We've all fallen short. None of us are righteous, not a single one. We have all broken God's law. Our sin separates us from God. It creates a division in the relationship between us and God. And what we need to be brought back is someone, number one, to obey where we have disobeyed. We need someone to earn the righteousness that we haven't failed to earn. Jesus came to do that. That was part of his mission, to do the Father's work. This is this food, right? I'm here to obey. Secondly, I'm here to die as a sacrifice. Not only do I need to live for you, but I'm going to have to die for you. Your sin and your unrighteousness and your wickedness is going to be put on Jesus and he's going to die as a sacrifice. He's going to take your place on the cross. And he says to the disciples, I have come to finish this mission. I'm here to obey for you and I'm here to die for you and I'm going to see it through to the end. And when you read it in John 4, it's almost like a uh, just a detail left hanging and you wonder when is it going to be finished and you get to John 19:30 and you realize it was finished when he died we celebrate that this week 
right? Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus riding into Jerusalem and the crowds cheering and chanting Hosanna and all of the excitement, but we know that Good Friday is coming. We know that on Friday they're going to turn on him and the authorities are going to frame him and falsely accuse him and the Romans are going to nail him on a cross and he's going to die. And as Christians, we actually celebrate these things. We're grateful for these things. We sing songs about these things. Why? It's because Jesus had a mission. And he told his disciples from the get-go, I intend to see it finished. It will be accomplished. And as he dies on Good Friday and he gives up his spirit, he says it's finished. It's accomplished. So number one, Jesus had a mission. Number two, followers of Jesus also have a mission. Jesus had a mission and we get a mission. Look at verse 35. John 4 verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Right? Jesus has a mission. He's going to live for us and die for us, and we have a mission. And John describes it in agricultural terms. What's involved in this mission? Our mission involves sowing and reaping. That's how Jesus lays it out. His mission is obedience and sacrifice, and he's going to see it through. Our mission involves sowing and reaping. Sowing. It's the act of sharing the good news. Think about the parable Jesus told about the soils, and he says, the farmer scatters this seed. And later he explains it. He says, the seed is the word of God, right? We're sowing the seed of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. We're going to Mission Arlington, and we're telling boys and girls and their parents the good news of Jesus. We're having a vacation Bible school right here at our church. We're going to do lots of different things, but the most important thing we're going to do is tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. We're going to sow the gospel into their lives. Part of our mission is sowing, and part of it is reaping. Right? That's the experience of actually seeing somebody trust Jesus Christ. Jesus sent us out to do this. I want you to sow the good news of the gospel, the seed of the gospel, into as many lives as possible. And where the Father's working, you'll be able to enjoy the harvest. There will be a reaping. And he tells the disciples, don't tell, me, don't tell me it's coming later. We're ready for the harvest now. Lift up your eyes. See the fields, white for harvest. Some people think that as Jesus said this, he and the disciples are looking towards this village, and the Samaritans, many of whom wore white, are walking out to see Jesus. And he's saying to them, literally, look. Look at what's coming. The harvest is now. This is our mission. It involves sowing. It involves reaping. I just want you to think how this works on a church level. Next week, we plan to have one, maybe a couple of baptisms on Easter Sunday. We get to celebrate somebody who has come to the point in their life where they see their sin as God sees it. They understand the good news of what God has accomplished for them through Jesus Right? They're willing to obey the Lord in his command to be baptized. The old person has died and the new person is now alive. That's reaping. We get to celebrate that. 
But every time we turn the lights on and we have a baptism up there, you understand that before we ever reap, there's an incredible amount of sowing. There's parents and grandparents who have sowed the seed of the gospel into the lives of their kids and their grandkids. And there's Sunday school teachers who have studied for lessons in the busyness of a work week. And the people show up to class and they've sowed the seed of the gospel into the lives of the people in their class. Sermons have been preached on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights where we're sowing the seed of the gospel into your life. Friends have shared the gospel with other people, understanding it's my responsibility to be engaged in this mission, to sow the seed of the gospel into the lives of other people. All of this sowing takes place and the end result is the reaping. And we get excited about the reaping. But don't forget how important it is to sow. Somebody has got to be faithful in sowing the seed of God's word. When we go on mission trips, we want to do crafts, we want to do games, we want to play with the kids in Kenya or the kids in Arlington, we want to do all this stuff. We want to help people when they're, they're struggling in poverty. We want to help them uh, to be lifted out of that in some way if we can. But the most important thing we do is sow the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ into their life and start to pray for a harvest. That's true when we go on a mission trip. That's true when we meet in this room on Sunday morning. Our primary purpose in this room is not just to entertain you with good music. My primary purpose is not to inspire you or encourage you or give you a little spiritual pick-me-up to get you through the rest of the week or to make you laugh and tell you something that's funny. It's to make the good news about Jesus Christ plain, to sow the seed of the gospel into your life, and then to step back and pray for a harvest, to pray that in your life there would be a harvest, in your family's life there would be a harvest, in our church and in our community there would be a harvest. And when we start to talk about the harvest, we take Jesus' mission and we take our mission and we mix them together and they start to come together for one purpose, and this is it. The aim of Jesus' mission And the aim of our mission is that people would believe in Jesus. It's that people would believe in Jesus. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. That's that word. You see it all the way through John over and over and over and over again. Always in the verb form, never in the noun form, always active. These people believed in Jesus Because of the woman's testimony. That's one of the ways that people end up believing. It happens through testimony. Testimony. And I want you to note the change in this woman. It's remarkable. And it happens so quickly. She shows up at noon when everyone else would have been there early in the day. She comes to fetch water all alone when everyone else would have come as a group. Presumably, because of her reputation in town, she's avoiding other people who might tease her or look down at her or give her a hard time. She's avoiding people, and she has an interaction with Jesus, and the first thing she does is what? She goes back to talk to the very people that she was trying to avoid in the first place. I came out here alone at noon because I didn't want to see any of those people. She meets Jesus. And a transformation takes place, and she immediately goes back to share her testimony, her story with the people. And I don't want to pick on this woman, but can I be honest? 
her testimony is not that great. Like, if you're going on a mission trip with us, we want your testimony to be a little more polished than this. We want, to give, we want you to give it a little more thought. We want you to include a little more gospel in it. But this is what she's got. And she's a changed woman. And she goes back and she says, let me tell you this. He told me everything I ever did. That's not exactly true. He told her about her husbands, multiple husbands. She goes back and she says, this guy told me everything that I ever did. There's something that you need to come see. And she invites them. What brings the change about in a woman who was avoiding people, five minutes later, she's inviting people? I think the change is awe. She meets Jesus and she experiences awe. And when you have an experience of awe, you instinctively want to share it with others. That's true if you meet Jesus. That's true any other time in your life you, you experience awe. Look, I know our landscape isn't much to look at, but our sunsets are pretty good. And a lot of you are like me. When you see a good sunset, you think, I got to take a picture of that and I got to put it on Facebook. I got to, like, you're awed by it and you want to say to everyone, this is why you put it on social media, look at this. This is awesome. I want you to see what I saw. No one has to manipulate you into doing that. You just do it. Grandparents do the same thing, right? All the time. Grandparents, parents, your kid does something, no one else cares, but you're awed. You're like, this is the most amazing thing. She took two steps. It was awesome. You should have seen it. I'm going to post a video. Look at this. I'm so proud. I want you to see it, and I want you to feel what I just felt. We do this with the big game, whether it's your kid playing high school sports or your favorite team playing in a tournament or the NBA playoffs or football or whatever. You see something great on TV or in person, and the next day, the rest of the week, you, you talk to everybody and you say, did you see it? Did you see it? And you know what? They're going to look at you and they're going to say, I saw it. And then you're going to go ahead and tell them all about it. They saw it. They saw the highlights. They watched the same game. It was great. But you've experienced awe, and you just want someone else to experience the same thing and to see what you saw and to feel what you felt. That's the woman. That's the woman. She meets Jesus. Her testimony is not that great, but she has experienced awe in having an encounter with Jesus. And no one has to twist her arm and say, okay, would you please sign up for a mission trip now? She just instinctively goes to the people she was avoiding that morning and she says, I got to tell you, there's a guy out here and you got to come see it. He told me everything that I ever did. And the Lord uses that. And these people begin to come out. How do people believe in Jesus? Well, it happens through testimony and secondly, it happens through relationship. And when I say relationship, I mean at some point it has to become more than secondhand for you, right? It has to become more than just hearsay or something you've heard from someone else. It has to be more than, well, my grandma was a great believer or my daddy was a preacher or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher. There has to be some personal relationship with Jesus, and you see that in verse 40. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, 
the other people who came to believe in Jesus, they said to the Samaritan woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There's relationship there. And for you, at some point in your life, you've got to get past hearing the reports about Jesus. You've got to get past reading the social media posts about Jesus. You've got to get past what your grandma or your dad told you about Jesus. And you've got to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus. And the beautiful thing is that for this village of people, Jesus goes out of his way to visit these people that most people would have avoided. And he talks with this woman that most people would have never spoken to. And she has an experience of awe. And about all she has to offer for the kingdom is to go back into town and she has two things to say. Number one, I just experienced something amazing. This guy told me everything I ever did. And the people question and they, they look at her suspiciously and they aren't quite sure. And she just says, come and see. Why don't you just come and check it out? You're going to have opportunities this week to talk to people about Jesus. You're going to have opportunities this week to invite people to Easter worship next Sunday. You don't have to have all the answers to every Bible question. You don't have to, to know exactly what's going to happen, when it's going to happen in the service. All you have to do is look people in the eye and say, why don't you come see? I've met a guy who's changed my life. And you should just come see for yourself. The mission of Jesus lines up with our mission when people believe. And this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're mindful that it's a visible expression of our faith in Jesus. Right? It's a, an acting out. It's a living out of what it means to believe in Jesus. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we're acknowledging individually and as a group. We're just confessing, God, we are sinful people. We have completely blown it. We are not worthy to be your children. We are not worthy to be called your friends. We are not worthy to be part of your kingdom. We're sinful people. We have fallen short. We believe, however, that Jesus came with a mission, that he obeyed for us, that he died for us, and that he finished what he came to do. And we believe that having a relationship with you through Jesus Christ is life-altering. It's life-changing. And we're trusting in the body of Christ, crushed and broken for our sins. We're trusting in the blood of Christ poured out to wash us and to make us white. We're not trusting in how good we have been or will be in the future. We're trusting in what Jesus has done on our behalf.